0: Welcome back, party people, to the place everybody wants to be, and I mean everybody. You know it, you love it, it of course is Victory Lane. That's right, everybody wants to be there, because if you win, you're there. Today's episode 90, and we are paying homage to a legendary car owner with a couple funny stories to boot. Pops has more on that specific individual in this week's Look Back.
1: Thank you, Duve, and welcome everyone to today's look back at number 90. 924 cup starts for the 90, and the vast majority of those, almost 850 of them, came for cars owned by one man, Junie Dunlevy. Wesley Christian, or Junie as we knew him, Dunlevy, had a short-lived career as a racer in his own right, but he never drove the 90 car. Instead, Dunleavy and the cars he owned and campaigned were a steady presence in NASCAR for more than 50 years. The list of drivers who drove for him, 67 of them in all, included some big names, including Hall of Famers Buck and Buddy Baker, Bobby Isaac, Fred Lorenzen, Benny Parsons, David Pearson, and Joe Weatherly. He was especially known for helping develop young drivers. Ken Schrader and Jody Ridley both won NASCAR Rookie of the Year honors while driving for Dunlavey. Dunlevy's only win as a car driver came from Ridley, who followed up on his rookie campaign by winning at Dover in 1981. His win that day was proof of the old racing adage that in order to finish first, you must first finish. Ridley was multiple laps down that day at the Monster Mile, with 40 laps remaining front runners Neil Bonnet and Cale Yarbrough both suffered engine failures. Ridley later told reporters, I looked up at the scoreboard and it said I was leading. I thought it was a mistake. A couple of laps later it was still up there so I said, shoot, that must be me. Dunleavy also was known for running his team on a shoestring budget. Ed Hinton, the great NASCAR writer, once told the story of how Dunleavy was approached in the 1970s By a new sponsor to NASCAR. He was willing to put his company's livery on the 90 car and was willing to spend $100,000 to do it. That was top-tier sponsorship money at the time. Jim Foster, the NASCAR marketing exec, called Dunleavy and was excited to offer him the deal. You'd think Dunleavy would have jumped at it. Dunleavy said, "In apologies for the accent, well Mr. Jim, me and my boys have a mighty good time racing. We don't worry about too much, but now if I was to take a $100,000 of this man's money, I'm afraid I'd have to be on the phone with him every Monday morning explaining what me and my boys had done in the race on Sunday. I believe that would make me nervous, and I'm afraid me and my boys wouldn't have as good a time. So Mr. Jim, if you don't mind, I believe I'll pass on that 100000 What do I keep telling you? They were different times. That's all for this week. Back to you, Duve.
0: Thank you, Mr. GM. I mean, Dad. <laughs> that was a good story. And they were indeed different times. That's uh can you imagine a team owner doing that now? Can you imagine like Jack Roush basically being like, Well, thanks for the offer, primary sponsor for all thirty-six races, but we're good. Like that's that's insane. So they were indeed different times. Anyways, we'll start this episode off as we always do with a good old fashioned today as you see from the episode title we are speaking with julia landauer she is a swiss army knife if i've ever seen one and it's part one of our conversation because we talked for so long about so much that i had to split it up into two we talked for an hour and a half that was me trying to whistle i know it's long right but god there's so much to get into with her and we covered pretty much all of it you may know her from the Wheel and Euro series this past year, but there is so much more than meets the eye of this race car driver, champion, as I call her, the most interesting woman in NASCAR, and I really mean it because there is so many different layers. She's an entrepreneur. She's a motivational speaker. She was a contestant on Survivor. She's from New York City and a female race car driver. You don't really get that combination at all, ever, literally, uh, she was a Stanford grad. Uh, she, she just, just done so much and we got a little bit introspective and had a lot of philosophical discussions here, but I do think it's well worth your time. And although I say it every week, this is really one of my favorite conversations. It's not one of your typical interviews that I do with people, but that's because Julia brings a lot to the table. So we had a lot of ground to cover. And I'm just so grateful that she gave me all this time. And, you know, you'd think with all the stuff she's doing, she'd be really, really busy. And she is. But she had a lot of time open in her afternoon schedule. And as we talked about in this episode, you got to find some time to just do stuff for yourself every once in a while. And this was one for her. So I thank her for her time. And without further ado, I'm going to get out of the way because we got a lot to cover and a little time to do it. Here's part one of our two-part chat with the most interesting woman in motorsports, Julia Landauer. This woman needs no introduction. She is a entrepreneur, race car driver, champion race car driver at that by the way, wheel and Euro series, wheel woman, motivational speaker. I'm gonna start repeating things at this point because there's just so many things that she does, has done, will continue to do that makes her the most interesting woman in motorsports. You know her, you love her. It is Julia Landauer. Thank you so much for carving out time in your extremely busy, packed schedule to chat with an old familiar face. I appreciate it.
2: Oh my God! Thank you, and you gotta stop. My ego is gonna like my head's not gonna fit the <laughs> door anymore. No, that was very flattering. Thank you, and happy you're to not,
0: be here. You're not the first person that's actually said, "Oh my God, my ego!" after a, a nice <laughs> intro. So I'm glad that I can do that right off the bat.
2: That is a great skill to have. It'll take you far.
0: First impressions mean a lot. You know that. Ah,
2: uh, yeah.
0: So I brand you as that because it's true, and I really do mean it. Like you know, people might be always being facetious, but it's true. There's so much to cover with you, your racing career, your career outside of the race car, off the racetrack, on it, from the States to Canada to Europe uh, to Survivor. There's Stanford. Like, I-, I don't know where to start, but I'm going to start here. And it- it's where w- your racing career kind of started. And that's at the Skip Barber Racing School because you had your eyes on open wheel formula cars. You became the first female champion in the series history at age 14. That is where you started to get your love and passion for motorsports.
2: Yeah, so it started a little bit before that in go kart. So I really got the bug when when racing in the you know the Manufacturers Cup Series in the in the World Karting Association. So got still road courses, um, you know, I I loved it. I was successful pretty quickly. So just like all the bugs that you catch with racing, you know, yeah. winning and you know, for me collaborating the the racetrack is such an intense environment and Mm -hmm. every all people are so intense and um i just i loved it but then in skip barber it was really cool because you know we had read about you know younger people who are starting to get into racing and back in that day you know being in your young teens really meant that you weren't driving race cars so the skip barber series allowed us to kind of do, you know, proves that I could handle a car um, and then get racing. And it was so cool as a, you know, 14-year-old girl going through puberty and middle school in New York City (laughs) and, like, all of that stuff to then be able to totally kick butt on the track. And I think the next youngest person was, like, 22 when I was 14. So... It was it was really cool and um, it was fascinating. And I remember like there's so many little things you learn when you jump from go-karts to cars. Like mm-hmm. in go-karts, when you get onto the straightaway, you kind of jump a little out of your seat to get the weight off of the back of the go-kart to get the wheels spinning quicker and okay. just helps with acceleration down the straight. And I clearly remember the first time I got on the straightaway at Lime Rock Park and I tried to jump in the seat with all the seat belts and it's like, oh, we got we gotta unlearn quite a few things to go <laughs> Um, but yeah, I loved it. And, um, kind of, I had grown up watching formula one primarily, and that's what my parents like to watch. Mm -hmm. Um, and so just started on that route and then have been in a lot of different types of cars, different types of racetracks since then.
0: So you're right. I I should have said that karting is where you kind of found your love for racing. Skip Barber is where you started making a little bit of national noise and headlines, things of that nature. But your WKA days, as you said, like. When, when you look back on those, and I see your smile on your face now because, you know, racing as it is now, we understand that it's a pay-to-play sport. There's a lot of intricacies that go along with it in the sense of sponsorship, logistics. There's a ridiculous amount of things that go into it that not a lot of people see. But back then, you didn't know any of that. You that were younger. Be- you were, you, Parents you just pay the bills exactly. and you just showed up and you had fun. And that's kind of what racing is all about at the end of the day, when you look back on things like that, and it's specifically those days, because I've heard you speak in other interviews about, you know, those days and how fond you are of those. And I'm sure now, you know, seeing what you've done, what you've accomplished and where you are in your racing career, those days probably are so much more fun to look back on now.
2: They're really cool. And it's funny you mentioned that now because, um, you know, my parents have slowly been sorting out this garage that's just full of so much stuff from (laughs) our youth. And so over the holidays, I was able to see, you know, timesheets from the go-karting. And, like, I I found one that was um, when I jumped from the junior classes to the senior classes at age 15. It was, like, my first pole in a senior class, and it was, like, my second race of the national series. Um, So it was just so cool. It was really – you know, in go karts, it was the first time where someone outside of my family came on to help me. My my coach and mechanic, Len Butler, who was a world karting champion himself from Canada. Um, you know, there are plenty of people who didn't want to help, but he kind of saw the potential, and so I had that external investment, which was really mm-hmm. cool. And it was so much fun, and the you know having friends at the track. And so um, I I feel very lucky that I got to do so much of that, and I'd love to do more. Um, so I'm going to look into getting into some more karting, hopefully.
0: I was gonna say, have you gotten the chance to do any lately in the last couple years or so?
2: So I've done stuff at GoPro, um, yeah. but I actually um, someone who I used to race with in go karts approached me about an endurance race. So I'm not now oh.
1: like
2: that a little more seriously. I don't know. Like I remember how rough it was on my body when I was like 14, 15, and yeah. I was, the, the like really adulty adults um, who mm. like get out of their go kart and just like be sore. So we'll see uh, how much it beats us up. But uh, now I think it would be a lot of fun.
0: I feel like you work out enough to be able to withstand it. I got faith in you.
2: Oh yeah, I think it's more like you are the suspension in a yeah. go kart, so you just kind of get beat up yeah. and you need know, a very solid rib protector. I remember that.
0: Like the the extent of my go karting is at uh, I've never been a GoPro, but um, like you know, not I'm trying to think of the name of it. It's uh, it's the indoor ones. There's one in Vegas. There's one in like, like K1. Uh, yes, K1 Speed. So like. That's my extent, right? And even doing those races that last maybe five minutes, I get out, I'm sweating, I'm already sore, I'm like, oh, I'm dreading waking up the next morning. And that's <laughs> just K1. And like seeing how people just sling things at GoPro and do it professionally, it's it's nuts. Like I think there's there's not enough appreciation for go-karting, not even just like younger drivers that are working their way up, but even like Lake Speed, I was listening to a podcast that he did. Like he was an insanely accomplished Carter, beat the likes of Ayrton Senna back in his day, and you know the fact that he was doing that when he was still a little bit older compared to the stereotypical age of Carters and how small you know those people are. There needs to be more of an appreciation for that. So let's bring them to them.
2: Yeah, that's right. I'm I'm on board with that.
0: Good. How does a teenage girl, maybe even before you were a teenager, so how does a young girl in New York City? wind up pursuing racing because I'm a fellow East Coaster. I got a lot of friends in the city. The city and racing, they don't mix. So how does that happen? I'm very curious. Um, That did (laughs) it happen?
2: Yeah. So I will be fully honest that racing was somewhat put in my lap. I think my dad wanted to race when he was little, and he wasn't allowed to. Um, Mm -hmm. So he had always liked cars. Um, But he and my mom were... Pair that with they wanted some. They wanted to find an activity where me and my younger sister and younger brother could all do something together um, instead of like one kid going one direction, one kid going the other. Um, and they were hoping to find something that was co-ed. And there are so few competitive right um, environments or activities that stay co-ed to the highest levels. I bet and they so- wish that
0: this specific activity was a little cheaper.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No. Definitely. Like maybe. I think. Like like archery might be co-ed or like you know stuff like that and it's like well that's okay i appreciate it glad you put those bills earlier on (laughs) um but no so so they got us into it and the go-kart track we went to was called Oakland Valley Race Park, and it was about two hours outside of New York City, and it's the same track that Marco Andretti went to, and like Pauly Baraka, and cool. Corey Lewis, and you know, Santino Ferrucci, um, so all of them were there, and uh, it was really competitive and really cool, and it allowed me to you know, stay in school and stay in New York, and my parents continued their jobs, and then we just had right. to go in the weekends.
0: So I think you started doing that. Uh, around 10 years old or so and then 2 years later i heard you say when you were 12 years old you pretty much already had your mind made up and said you know like i want to actually pursue this this is what i'm going to pursue as a career you had your mind made up at 12 years old
2: i think i think especially at that time when you're like starting to figure out who you are as a person a little mm-hmm. bit like you know what works and what doesn't work i just realized that one i was having so much fun like it's just a very fun activity mm-hmm but also I was most proud of myself at the racetrack. I was very aware of how much work I was putting in training, you know, especially being, I was like a really scrawny kid. And so like, I had to start, you know, I started running when I was 12. I started doing all the stuff where I realized I was, taking active, actively taking extra steps to try to be as good as I could be. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I knew that it had the potential to be a lucrative uh, career. And, um, you know, my parents, when I told them, they're like, all right, cool. Well, you know, we can do this. And even if it doesn't work out, like you learn a lot of life lessons and you set yourself up, well, it'd be interesting. So it was like, you go for plan A and they were comfortable supporting me uh, for the other things it would, it would lead, could lead to. And uh, yeah, I'm, I feel very lucky that I had that reaction to racing, whereas like my sister didn't love it as much, and she went on to row crew and become a national champion in crew. Casual. Um, and and like, so I feel very lucky that that it worked out like that.
0: So in Manhattan specifically, were you guys in the city? Like, are we talking in the city?
2: Yeah, I grew up on the Upper West Side, so okay. it was about half a block from Central Park, um, and like walked to school and everything. So yeah, yeah. Like, in New York City.
0: So for those that haven't been in New York City, we'll let you in on a little secret. There's nowhere to really drive. And even if you have a car, it's a pain in the ass. And I heard somewhere that you really didn't drive that much. You did most of your driving when you got to Stanford. So like while you were go karting and racing and pursuing this career, you were doing all of this while not really driving. And I think I also heard you say you don't really like driving on the street that much.
2: Yeah, so I didn't get my driver's license until I was 18. Um, if you're a New York City resident, I think there's also, you, you can't get it till you're 17, and then you need to take driver's ed to get it at 17, and yeah. I was just opposed to get doing driver's ed. Um, <laughs> you're not and, and so I got it at 18, and like I practiced a little bit, but not really, and then mm-hmm. weren't allowed to have cars on campus until sophomore year, and so then I finally got one, because being in Northern California, there's so much that you can go explore and drive, to, So my parents let me take one of their cars. And I realized, like, also, I, you know, I was so nervous to get gas for the first time and, like, fill up a gas tank. (laughs) And, you know, parking lots were super scary. Well, because on the
0: Jersey Turnpike, they fill it up for you.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. No, New Jersey. I think New Jersey, Oregon, I forget where else, but they are service stations. Yeah. You pump your own gas. So, yeah, I had to learn a lot. And um, I... I don't know. I, I just don't love driving on the street. I think there's something like when you're just by yourself and it's on a nice road, that's fine. But like you have to be so defensive on the road and uh, drivers aren't very good. And that was one thing being in Europe that was so nice is it's a much, um, you have to work a lot harder to get your license. One, it's like thousands of dollars. It's more expensive. Wow. Um, and you have to do lots of hours of, you know, actual practice with yeah. a professional driving teacher. So, and they follow the rules better. And so it's just, it um like everyone stays to the right so it was a more pleasant driving experience but i certainly get road rage and i'm a terrible (laughs) parallel parker and yeah that's my driving experience
0: well i'm not surprised that europe does something better than the us in terms of uh giving people licenses That's not surprising there uh i also suck at parallel parking hate that
2: i need a spotter like i don't
0: have to do this seriously i'd (laughs) rather just have like a self-automated parking you know Feature that i could just like my rear view mirror or rear view camera sorry the mirror does nothing for me when i'm parallel parking the rear view camera is really nice but i need like i think there's some new hyundai or something you literally push a button and it parallel parks for you
2: anything i'll pay all the
0: money in the world for that
2: amazing yeah
0: especially in new york too because you got to find street parking while you can because there's barely any even as is i
2: don't know no, the last time i drove in new york city it just been so long it's <laughs> so not like,
0: fun it's
2: not fun and like <laughs> you can walk or take last time i took public transportation it was faster um <laughs> so yeah it's uh it's a lot nicer in charlotte though like
0: yeah it's...
2: charlotte drivers are not fantastic i feel like every place has its own flavor of bad drivers i
0: agree with that
2: charlotte certainly has its own um but overall it's a little less congested than new york so that's good
0: DC has its fair share of bad, crazy drivers as well, especially now. Like I I was just driving in and and came back from work in downtown DC, partly because there's a lot of roads closed off with the impending inauguration because obvious reasons there's gotta be a lot of security there, especially what happened last week. But even so, like there's a ridiculous amount of traffic, so many just annoying drivers. I mean, I'm probably one of them at some point, but also, you know, spotters say it's way easier to spot a fast car than a slow car. I feel like, in a way, when you're on the highway, it's easier to, like, be the fast car than be the slow car. Not egregiously fast. We're not advocating for that.
2: Right, right. But, like...
0: Like nine, yeah. 10 over. That's fine. I got
2: you. It was, um, I think it was, uh, someone at South Boston speedway, um, in Virginia, when I was racing part-time weight models there, <clears throat> they made the points like, all right, on these roads, nine, you're fine. 10, you're mine. And I was like, Oh, that's so brilliant. That's good. Yeah.
0: I'm going to so, probably put that on a t-shirt or something.
2: Yeah. It, it's really smart. We love a good rhyme
0: we do. So you grew up watching Formula 1 a lot in your household, your parents like that. But I assume that, you know, now that you've dabbled in NASCAR, you had to at least, you know, know about NASCAR and watch it a little bit here and there. I think Carl Edwards may have been your guy growing up, is that true?
2: Yeah, and so I um but when I was 16, I switched to Ford Focus Midgets and oval racing. So yeah. by the time I was like 15-16, I knew that that was what I was gonna pursue more aggressively. Um, I then started watching a lot more NASCAR. And I've always been a big Carl Edwards fan. And I've been able to mm-hmm. speak with him a few times, which is super cool. And um big Mark Martin fan also. Um, and uh but yeah, so it's it's definitely been interesting to see kind of how the sport has changed. And now now I would say honestly I'm a better oval racer than road course racer at this point, just because I've done so much more. Yeah. And that was my I realize being in europe with people who race on road courses all the time just kind of how different it is and everything from like how you set up passing to um you know what the car feels like when it's at the limit it's very different on an oval than it is on a road course and a lot of the euro guys would be like i suck on ovals i never want to do them again i don't know why you want to get that close to a wall and so it's just it's super different
0: just a lot of specialization over there too i mean and for the fact that there's not many oval tracks that are in Europe like this is just all road courses yeah and I was
2: super bummed because the Euro series normally has uh Venray which is in the Netherlands and it's about a half mile oval which people say is similar to New Smyrna which I haven't been on New Smyrna but um they took it off the schedule this year and then it's not on the schedule next year so Damn. it's um I'm a little bummed so I was like oh good I have one one place where I can be comfortable and like you know I'll know what I'm doing but
0: yeah that's a- so I, we'll get into the motivational speaking aspect and just positivity in general and female empowerment stuff later, but Carl Edwards, um, besides the fact that he was a wheelman on the track, um, I think that you know, you two have some similarities off track in terms of your personality, in the sense that you know, you're know very strong-willed in who you are, you're good people, uh, besides the fact that he has no social media or is not in the public eye at all. I feel like you guys are a little bit similar in that aspect. And I'm curious if your admiration for him as a driver, did that factor into it at all? Or were you too young at that point to kind of understand that aspect of things?
2: Um, You know, when I look back at who I, you know, who drivers that I, or just people in general Mm -hmm. that I looked up to, I feel like some of them are, a lot of them are people that I can relate to on some way, but who like leave room for aspirations, right? Like there's, I want to make myself, I want to elevate myself to be more like them um so i think that element's always there um and with with carl edwards and mark martin and jimmy johnson and you know there's like just a humility and classiness while still being fun i guess and like so dedicated yeah. to your craft and you know committed to family and your loved ones and i just like, you know when that comes through i just think that that's really attractive and i think i think especially now and i don't like now is a broad term but like the lines of professional and personal and, you know, work and family, like they're blending a lot more. And I've always been someone who's more vulnerable and open with kind of things that are important to me. And like, you know, I just vocalize what what I care about and I feel like there's some of that also. And so, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, just cool guys. And there are a lot of other cool like people that I think right. are cool, super talented in the field, obviously, but just like an overall, you know, one of my, Biggest heroes is you know Paul Newman and just someone who just like epitomizes living your life as big as you can, but yeah. on your own pace, on your own scale, and like doing doing things that interest you. I mean, an actor and a race car driver and a philanthropist and just like a great family man. It's like, oh my God, can I be <laughs> like this is amazing. You're on your way. Oh thank you, I'm trying.
0: <laughs> That's interesting perspective though. I appreciate it because um, it's it's funny. Like most people, myself included. You know, oh, how'd you become a Kevin Harvick fan? Well, he had ET on his car at Bristol one year, and the rest is history. You're like, oh, why do you like Kyle Busch? It's like, oh, my friend told me to eat a whole pack of M&Ms, and then Kyle won the race the next week. It's just like most people have such dumb, weird stories about how they became fans of a certain driver, which we love, but it's also yeah. nice, refreshing to have, like, more of a, a deeper aspect into, like, why you actually like and admire this driver, you know, mm-hmm. on track and off track. So I appreciate you for that. Yeah. So there's only one Cup Series driver, Julia, with a college degree. I I think you're probably aware of that. It's Ryan Newman from Purdue. He has an engineering degree. But there's not many other college-educated race car drivers, not specifically in NASCAR, but in motorsports, I think, worldwide. I mean, you would know better than me. But as far as I know, I don't think there's a ton of drivers that have college degrees because the main reason is... They don't have time for that, and they go straight from high school. Maybe they don't finish high school, and they pursue racing, and a lot of them have success at it. That's why they're at where they're at. But you decided to go to college instead of pursuing racing right after high school. You went to Stanford casual. But my question is, why did you decide to do that instead of pursuing things right after high school? Because 99.9% of race car drivers and people that we see have success and get to a level that you're at, they don't choose to go down that path, but it was clearly very important to you and you've clearly been very successful in doing so.
2: Thank you. Well, first little shout out to Jesse Little because I saw that he just graduated. He did, UNC uh, Charlotte,
0: good for him. Yeah, that's
2: right, so that's awesome. Um, Yeah, so it was, I like to say, I would like to say it was some like profound thing, but it was very pragmatic. My parents were like, yo, we can't pay for this forever. <laughs> like, you need to learn how to pay for this. Um, And so that was kind of, you know they told me that fairly early on in my teen years and so I was aware that the whole business side of racing the marketing the being able to get partners the um you know being able to build a base that supports you um you know I knew that I was gonna have to do that so that was one thing that made me go to go to school um also I you know I'm very close with my family and you know I'm so grateful for that. But when I was 16, 17, 18, I felt like I needed to be able to stand on my own two feet a little bit more. And I knew that I, from my perspective, the more that I could grow as a person and the smarter I could get on my own and the more, you know, well-rounded I could be, I thought that that, you know, that would inevitably make me a better racer as well. Um, And I was happy to get some more technical background to be able to be able to articulate what I need out of the car more and understand the dynamics of the car, which you can do without school. But, um, and also I, you know, the you know most race car drivers are done racing by the time they're in their thirties or forties. And so for me, there was that net, that, that later phase that, I knew I wanted to be prepared for. I don't really like sitting still. I, I, I like building stuff, doing stuff. Yeah, um, same. And so all of those factors kind of went in. Um, and I'm so glad I did. I wouldn't, even though like, you know, you see, think what could have been in hindsight 2020 and everything, but I wouldn't go back and do anything differently. Um, so yeah, I don't know, that, that's kind of it.
0: And you decided, I'm sure, to write about your racing career in your college essay which had to be an automatic eye catcher.
2: Oh yeah, no we leveraged racing for all its Have worth. Yeah. Well, and I didn't get in right away, so I applied early and my application was not good enough to get in right away. I got in eventually, obviously, but um so that surprised me a little bit, I'll be okay. honest. Maybe I was a little arrogant, but I was really surprised I didn't <laughs> get in right away. Um and I worked on my grades and I got my grades better, but um no, for like every class that you had to apl- had to apply to get into, I somehow brought racing in because I, I knew that, I knew that no, like they weren't gonna noll at me in and I'm privileged, but I got every class that I wanted to get by putting racing in. Yeah, one of the one of the coolest ones. So like I took a there was a very small seminar that was offered once a year that uh, was about the graphic novels, so like comic books and, and mm-hmm. graphic novels, and I just. I love them and I thought it was so cool and the professor is this older woman who's so accomplished and smart and really wanted to take it and so I, I put together something about how like in racing I need you know we need to focus on like our image and what our communication and how as as a public figure we're talking to the fans or something like that it I like, like it. This is why the graphic novel is important and I need to be in this class. And I'm still in touch with the professor. She responds to all my newsletters. Like, it's, it's I contributed to one of the books she wrote. Like, so cool.
0: But you got to leverage
2: what you got. Like, there's no shame in leveraging what you got.
0: Yeah, no, 100%. I mean, like, if you have something that, I mean, it's not even, like, BSing that, like, it's a huge chapter and, like, impact in your life. And it kind of shapes everything that you do. And up until that point, it did. So there was no reason to not include that if it. I mean, you weren't lying about any of it. It just happened to be like a perfect essay scenario. An
2: unfair advantage that I had throughout my four years, but I'm okay with that. That's all right.
0: Yeah, you know, we're not going to apologize for doing what we love. That's fine. Um, in terms of like applying to Stanford, was that your number one? Like, were you prepared to go elsewhere, or were you pretty set on going out to Cali? I was. It
2: was definitely my number one. Um, and I had applied to a couple other schools in California and I think I applied to seven schools altogether. Um, and I, yeah, so I was hoping to get in early so that I could just stop on my other applications and I didn't. So I had to apply to the other ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and Stanford let us know a few days before the date that they said they were going to let us know. Mm-hmm. So I kind of knew before spring break of my senior year where I was going, That's um, nice. Yeah, no, it was, it was really nice. <laughs> Although, unfortunately, I checked with my best friend, and he hadn't gotten in. He did just fine, um, but he hadn't <laughs> gotten in. So, I was like a little awkward friend moment. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I, I wanted to go there. I wanted to one. I, I love California. I just I wish it wasn't always on fire and with mudslides and all of that. <laughs> it's a tough place to live. Earth. Although the only earthquakes I have felt have been in North Carolina. I didn't feel any earthquakes. Hmm. Since I was there. Wow. Um, And it was, it was so different. And like a lot of the stuff they were, you know, there's a lot of tension around kind of some of the green energy work that they were doing. And I've always found that very interesting. So Mm -hmm. again, very, very grateful and very lucky that it all worked out.
0: Sticking on the school aspect of things. And I think you kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier, but I imagine being in racing for that portion of your life, you know, when you're a very impressionable person, it probably helped you grow up a lot and do so quickly. And I'm curious if you can pinpoint anything that you learned at the racetrack or being in racing, that they can't really teach you in a classroom, whether that be life lessons, just how to treat other people, anything of that sort, because I'm sure that you learned a lot of things in racing that are invaluable.
2: Oh, yeah, lots of stuff, lots of those big, big life lessons. Um, But there were a couple of things like you know, in racing, you have to deal with people who are awful sometimes like it was like in racing, you're close to some pretty terrible people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I feel like a lot of parents and schools try to shelter kids from that. So that I thought was a super cool thing to learn. And you just learn how to deal with people who either you know, think differently than you do are actively mean or bullies or cheaters. And, you know, like, and you have to, you kind of learn to make your own judgments and then how you, how you deal with them. So that was a good life lesson. Um, I think also, you know, so much of racing and what's different about racing than other sports is like in any team sport, you have a 50, 50 chance of winning for the most part. Mm Mm-hmm. And in racing, I think, like, Jeff Gordon, one of the most accomplished racers, I think his win rate is, like, not quite 15% win rate. So yep. you're just, like, so much more likely to lose. Like, like it's a, I don't know why anyone would do it, even though I love it very much. It's just, like, you're so not likely to win. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think that perseverance and, like, when things aren't going well, how to maintain enthusiasm, how to keep pushing, how to... Um, you know, I've learned, especially, I think being a woman in racing also kind of forced me to do this a little more, but figure out how to motivate the team to stay with it to be their best. And when you're doing well, how to be even better. Um, And so I think those are lessons that most 18 year olds when they go to college, don't have. And so I think it, I was like, it wasn't as much of a shock getting to school because I was, I had been so exposed to so many different types of people and um, different like hard, not hardships, but like, tough scenarios that we had to yeah. work through on a competitive side. Um, so I think that helped.
0: I think, you and I have similar experiences in that aspect. And I think partially, partially it's like, you know, the East coast is so different than, you know, even just driving seven hours South of here in DC and Charlotte, like it's, it's so different. And for lack of a better term, you know, at least me personally, I felt like I was in this bubble here. And then once I started covering, like, you know, when I covered K&N, like almost every race for a couple of years, I learned really quick that out there and with that, you know, specific group of people, it's way different than everything that I knew from beliefs to taste in like culture, food, like language, everything. It's, it's so different. And I think racing really exposes you to see those things for what they are and appreciate them as different not to look upon them and say like oh that's different but look upon it and say oh that's different and it's not bad it's good it's good to like see different perspectives and understand you know why you've been thinking this way or having certain thoughts your entire life and you know you doing that at such a young age although you were still racing primarily like you know in new york state it really does make you grow up quick and have different beliefs and think quicker. And I think that's kind of an, a unique perspective that you have, because as I said, there's not a lot of female race car drivers from Manhattan. Like I think that's one of one So in that aspect of things, you have a really unique perspective on things. And that's why I think that you have a really good mindset about, and I know I'm like blowing smoke, but I'm not like, I think you have a really good mindset. Yeah. I just think that your mindset when it comes to that type of stuff, it's unparalleled because nobody has the experience that you've had with that.
2: Thank you. And I think the point of what you're saying about how like when you're young and in racing, you're, just, you're exposed to people who are just, you know, have different perspectives. I think that, I think that goes both ways. Cause one of the things that I've noticed is, you know, the people that I've stayed friends with in racing, a lot of them were raised very differently than I was and had different, you know, I don't want to say different values, but like, you know, just different experiences, different perspectives. Yeah. And there's, what I found is that the people I stay close with have, you know, mutual respect, even if there are very, like, clear things that we differ on. And I think that's something that's so cool. And, you know, I I miss New York so much. I've never lived there as an adult, and I really want to do that eventually. But, um, you know, I feel very grateful that not only with going to college, but then with moving to North Carolina, it is so culturally different. California was, di- well, I stayed different the Northern California Bay area bubble was so different than New York. Oh, yeah. The other parts of California that I raced in and that I visited are so different than that little bubble. Yeah. And then North Carolina and Charlotte are so different than both of those. And you know, I don't think Charlotte's my forever home, but I'm so grateful to be able to one be in the heart of racing and so many people who like it here, but then, you know, to your point, just get that different perspective and and understand. And I think, you know, we get very philosophical on this, but it's important. Yeah, yeah. I think um it's it's good to be empathetic
0: i think yeah i mean when you were saying that you had your new york bubble you got your charlotte bubble you got your northern california bubble then you have your roseville orange show <laughs> like current all these different like Canon west track bubble and then you went to canada with the pinty series then now you were in europe for three months so you got it all covered girl i'm telling you <laughs> yeah
2: it was so funny in the pinty series because i don't know like it's, they don't have southern accents by any means but like a lot of people just like the english-speaking canadians yeah had you know they sounded like a nascar garage like it yeah. was not not super different but then i remember it was so jarring to hear like canadian french in the garage it was like wait but this is nascar and these are nascar pit crews so why yeah. am i hearing yeah. this like very elegant language <laughs> that yeah so weird and then like it was less of a big deal um in the euro series because my whole team spoke english so i heard other languages but i was i was used to it at that point
0: so sticking with your college experience for a little bit uh freshman year i think the summer after your freshman year you interned for a cup series team is that right
2: yeah i interned for ganassi in their pr pr department yeah
0: i don't think they probably got a lot of applicants that were aspiring race car drivers at that point so that set you apart as well
2: it did. And I've known Lauren Renier for a really long time. And mm-hmm. so he also helped set that up, which I'm really grateful for. And for me, it was like, you know, I was gonna I knew I was gonna be racing at South Boston for the summer. Mm-hmm. And um, I wanted to be able to just live there and have something to do. And yeah. I learned so much. I mean, I think unpaid internships shouldn't be the case because you know, if you do work, you, you should be compensated. But I did learn so much. And um, it was my introduction in North Carolina. So I lived up in Mooresville. I actually live oh, oh, we are coming back on memories here. I lived <laughs> with Allie Owens, who used to race. I lived with her and her husband. And I don't remember if they had a kid at that point, but so I got to live like in a guest room that they had and just wow. like get the Mooresville experience. And um, yeah, it was super cool.
0: That's pretty cool. So freshman year, you interned for Ganassi, mm-hmm. you race at South Boston mostly over that summer, and then you go on Survivor. This is just the most abnormal college experience that Anybody I know has ever had. How did that happen? Because the story that I heard you tell was essentially, you know, long story shorter. But you can go into as much detail as you would like. One of your friends was like, "Yeah, you should apply," and you did, and that was that. Oh,
2: forgetful. Well, I forget how the conversation started. But it was my roommate sophomore year, and was also from New York, and we were just talking about shows and how, like, on Survivor specifically, you know, the women are seen as total badasses. It's, it's like. Gross generalization, but like beauty queens are badasses. It's like that's the that's the, the buckets that women get put into. And then she just kind of like off the cuff was like, Oh my god, you should go on that. And I was like, mm, okay. And I looked at the application and I watched some I watched some more of the show and I applied and I got on. And I remember I was in North Carolina when I learned that I had, you know, made it to the final rounds of casting. Um and I
0: was so excited
2: and so nervous, but so excited. That's pretty
0: cool. Yeah. Survivor in general, I have a couple questions about that. So I know that during your entire time there, you didn't mention the fact that you were attending Stanford at that point because the prize is a million bucks. You didn't want people to think of you differently. But that also was a tough thing to manage because, you know, you didn't want to be like lying to your tribe mates and everything like that. And I like the story that you told. Um, I, I like don't watch Survivor, but when I when I like heard that you were on, I paid attention a little bit more on that stuff. I don't remember this specifically, but when you got voted off, the person that basically was just talking all this shit to you was basically like, She's an insult to vanilla. That's how boring she is.
2: Yep. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. No, my let me, God. Let me, quote, let me quote it for you, please. So he said, "I'm tempted to say that Julia has a vanilla personality, but I fear that would do a disservice to the flavor of vanilla because people actively seek out vanilla flavored products, and no one seeks out anything Julia flavored." Awful. Awful. It's not like
0: you memorized that or anything.
2: <laughs> oh no! It's not like I use it to my advantage now. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, no, it was it was interesting because. Um, one survivor is very real. Like it, what you see is what you get. I, you know, I wish we had more water. I wish we had more food. I lost a ton of weight. I was so dehydrated, I was so sunburned. Um, and it, it was just it was very challenging. I was the youngest person out there, and my. I, I, I regret this and I would not do this the same way. But to your point, I thought like, okay, no one's going to feel like they should give me a million dollars with my background. I just, mm-hmm. I don't see that relevant. I put too much emphasis on that, I think. Um, and so there's a lot of downtime and you're on the Island and you're building these relationships and you know, you're, you're so tired, you're so hungry, you're so drained, it's exhausting. And I realized like I would want to contribute to a conversation and then realize mm, that would I'd have to figure out how to frame it so that it didn't tie back to college and then yeah. it just got tiring and I wasn't, I did not feel like I was sharp enough at that point to do that. And so I just was more quiet. And for me, it was an extremely painful lesson in kind of just self-awareness and, and understanding, being aware of what you're projecting versus what people are perceiving and being intentional. Cause you know, as you said, first impressions are important. And um, it was very clear that I would probably do better. My personality would probably do better if I was just more transparent and more relatable. And I think especially being, to your point, a New York City raised, college-educated female race car driver, I was always an other, an outsider, if you will. And so I had gotten a lot of advice from people who meant well, but kind of gave me tips for how to tune down the differences. And um, I think that ended up really hurting me in those years because it's just like trying to be a people pleaser, which was boring. Yeah. So anyway, I learned it and I, I'm very confident now that like whether it's like getting on a Zoom or giving a talk or walking into a room, like I know what I'm giving off and what people are seeing and I'm pretty happy with it.
0: Yeah. Something that, you know, I took away from your experience there was basically, you pretty much said it, it's like taking ownership of who you are. And like, when you got voted off the show, you started reflecting about it and you realized that you weren't doing that and why weren't you doing that? And then, you know, that was that mind change where you're like, all right, like I shouldn't want to hide this. Like, like why, why hide a big aspect of who I am? Like people should understand that and appreciate me for who I am. They do now. But when you were then, I mean, it's fair. Like you're a sophomore in college everybody is human they overthink stuff a ridiculous amount especially being a sophomore in college dehydrated sunburned on survivor like i get it but it's a good lesson that you learn coming out of there because it's like just important life skill to have which is self actualization and just like understanding and taking ownership of who you are as a person
2: and i think also like being aware that i i forget where i heard this but it's like you're not going to be for everybody and that's Mm -hmm. okay because not everybody's for you like you think about all the people you don't care for you don't like it's like well people are also going to feel that way about you and kind of being okay with that and understanding that it's the little more personal things that make you relatable to people who will like you like you know do that and my mom made the point like and she She's got confidence. She does not care what people think about her. And she you know, said, look, Julia, people are going to hate you because you have brown hair. People are going to hate you because you're from New York. You have no control over these things and people are going to hate you. So just own it. And I was like, that's right. That's so right.
0: Hell yeah, mama.
2: So, yeah, mama lands. She was on the point with that.
0: So we get to the graduation point of college and we decide, you know, let's do this. We're going racing. We're pursuing this. Let's get it on. So you do that, but getting the initial respect of the team, regardless of what discipline you're in, what series, what car you're driving, whatever, getting the initial respect from the team you said was the hardest part of being a female in motorsports. It's kind of like a cliche, generic question, but why is that the case? Like, I understand back then was a different time than we are right now in 2021, but still, like, why is that the case? And, and why did people look at you differently? Besides the fact that you're just a female race car driver, or was that it? People hadn't seen that before, and they were skeptical.
2: Yeah, and I think um, you know, I've had to that point. Like when I raced for Lee, which was the first team outside of after college, mm-hmm. uh, Lee. Bowen, like it was incredible because he knew that his equipment was really good. He knew that his people were really good, and he just expected me to win. And that is extremely powerful for any driver like any driver the team believes in you and the team has expectations that are founded in just like you know having all the the building blocks there that is empowering and so we did really well i won the first two races i won half the race in the season in the championship so that was great but there, you know historically whether in go-karts through cars whatever there have been the teams where it just you know having that same expectation that we're going to win isn't always there. And I get it because there are not a lot of examples of women who are winning race car drivers. And there are plenty of stereotypes that are still alive and well. And this is where, for me, it's not just in racing, but just in life. It's important to remember, like everyone comes from a different background. Everyone comes from different biases, different stereotypes. You know, all it takes is someone's parents, you know, instilling stereotypes in them that that's how they're going to be raised and it's not their fault. So What I've always tried to do is when I if I feel that I need to show that I'm there to win um, and therefore, you know, trying to encourage the team to work that much harder. um, It's just to, you know, be patient and to vocalize that. And, you know, I'm there to work hard. Like We all want to win. We don't want to go wake up super early to go spend all day in random place right. somewhere to go putts around mid pack, you know, like it's not fun for anybody. So just unifying the team as to like, that's the common goal and then backing it up. And there have been years that I don't win, right? And so then it's harder, but it's, um, you know I think at the end of the day, it's about being able to build a relationship the team to, you know, have fun with each other, be able to lean on each other, be able to give feedback. And, you know, for me, that's super important. If, if anyone sees something that I could be doing better, i want them to know and um so i think a lot of it just comes down to experience that people have or don't have um with with younger drivers with women you know any new york stereotypes people might have i don't know um but overall i think i've had a pretty good experience but there are little things that you know you go through
0: yeah i mean like from the times that we were at the racetrack together you know i i didn't see anything negative i saw you being treated as the same as everybody else, which is how it should be. But I I wasn't there for this either. But the one story that you told really stuck out to me, which is a message that you heard on the radio from some spotter that said, you know, what the spotter was telling their driver about you. And they said, quote, don't let that bitch pass you. And yeah. I think that's partly like, what an asshole. And also partly like, not flattering, but also like, yes, I'm going to pass you. Like, wh- why is it different? You know, like... I'm like, I'm in a car, you know, you shouldn't be looking at somebody and saying, oh, that's the girl driving the car. You should be saying that car's running two tenths faster than me every lap. So she's coming like it shouldn't be that way, you know?
2: Yeah. And I think that, you know, when I so my spotter told me after the race that that's what this kid's dad had said and so for me it was really interesting because again that's that's an external figure reinforcing these stereotypes and if you're referring to me as a bitch who shouldn't be able to pass you like language is important and language makes a difference and so this kid's going to hear that and have these negative connotations with successful women Mm -hmm. or women who are competitive and it's um i think that's too bad um but it, it goes to show i think you know if you've if you've never worked with a woman in this kind of high competition environment, you might not be aware of some of the little things that are said. And obviously, like I didn't, it didn't affect my performance on right. track. But it was interesting for my spotter to hear that there was this kind of aggressive language for no reason. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it's just it's interesting, and in that's it's been kind of rewarding also to, I guess, kind of show kind of what we go through into like when you see. The, Thing that's so cool for me is that when the team then sees some of these little unfairnesses and these little you know stereotypes that i'm up against or biases that i'm up against it's like they rally behind me and yeah. i know other women not just in racing but in life who when the guys then rally behind you it's like this really powerful team and male They're allies are super important yeah and so um i'm you know those little moments make you optimistic and make you appreciate that all the good people that are out there right and it's just like yeah. you know so it's been an interesting, an interesting journey in that regard.
0: For sure. And we're back. Whew. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. And if you did, good news for you. There's more where that came from. We got part two dropping next week here on Victory Lane. So be sure to click that subscribe button. So your episode will automatically be downloaded to your favorite device of choice from whatever podcast player you prefer. And I hope that you'll enjoy that one as much as you enjoyed this one. So stay tuned. Drop in around Inauguration Day, January 20th, next Wednesday here in Washington, D.C. Hopefully, you'll have some Inauguration Podcast to go along with whatever you're watching on TV that day. Look, nuts up the week! Cute up funky music, white boy. Lots of silly season news has dropped this week. Sponsors, part-time rides, full-time rides, we are covering it all here on Victory Lane this week been a quiet few weeks in the Lug Nuts department, but we got a lot of stuff this week. So here we go. Kaz Growl is going to compete in the Daytona 500 for Collig Racing this season. He ran really well at the Daytona Road Course, filling in for the sick Austin Dillon. So glad that his talents were recognized there. Potential to do some road course races there for the team as well. Anthony Alfredo, he's been tapped as the driver for the number 38 for Front Row Motorsports on a full-time basis. And they also announced that their driver lineup of Michael McDowell, Todd Gillen will be returning to the Cup and Truck Series, respectively, as well as guest on Victory Lane a couple weeks back, David Reagan. He's going to be competing in the Daytona 500 for that team for the second year in a row. Unfortunately, the Kyle Petty charity ride has been postponed once again. It was postponed once this year already, and unfortunately, it got postponed to April and May of 2022 so they're not taking any risks they're probably the safe responsible and smart thing to do but it will have to wait for unfortunately over another year remember Miguel Paluto the Brazilian driver well he's coming back to NASCAR he's going to run three road courses this year for junior motorsports at Coda Daytona and mid-Ohio and the number eight Brandt professional agriculture sponsored Chevrolet for JRM so that'll be interesting to see Kohler Generators is going to sponsor Ryan Newman for eight races as a primary sponsor this season, an associate for the rest of the year. Adrenaline Shock, which is a new energy drink, they're going to sponsor Chase Elliott for two primary races this season and stay on as an associate with the departure of Mountain Dew and PepsiCo from Hendrick Motorsports and NASCAR in general. That left open some primary sponsorship for them, which they will fill. Mason Massey and Stefan Parsons, they're both going to run part-time for B.J. McLeod Motorsports in the number 99 Xfinity Series entry this year. Ryan Sieg Racing, they are switching to Ford for the upcoming season. They had been full-time with Chevrolet since 2014, so now that means uh, the 98 car of Riley Herbst. That was almost a tongue twister or a uh, Freudian slip, talking about Chase Briscoe. So the 98, the 22 of Austin Sindrick, and now the 39 of Ryan Sieg, they are going to be driving Fords in Xfinity this year more silly season news santino ferrucci the indycar open wheel youngster he is coming over to nascar and starting in the xfinity series with sam hunt racing his first race is going to be at homestead miami speedway and he's going to focus primarily on ovals as well as brandon godovic who actually was announced yesterday at the time of this recording that he's going to be doing a part-time schedule with sam hunt racing as well primarily oval focused Rafael Lassard is named the full-time fifth entry for GMS Racing in the Camping World Truck Series. He was going to run partially, but now he has sponsorship for a full-time ride. And their crew chief lineup consists of all four championship four crew chiefs from last year. And they got that because they got Jeff Hensley to come over from Thor Sport Racing, who brought Grant Enfinger there last year. So you got Jeff Stankiewicz, Kevin Bono Mannion, Chad Walter, Jeff Hensley, and Charles Denneke. Also, Haley Deegan is going to be required to take sensitivity training after she uttered a slur, which was the R word, on an iRacing Twitch stream this week. And Jill Gregory was named the general manager at Sonoma Raceway. She was a NASCAR executive for many, many years. No doubt she's going to be able to do great things over there in Northern California. A lot of lug nuts this week, right? God, I got used to just talking about it for two seconds, but... Had a lot this week, and it was fun telling you guys all about them. It was great chatting with Julia. Really hope you guys enjoyed that. If you like what you heard today at any point in the show, please do me a favor, leave a rating and a review. Subscribe to the podcast. We're available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud. Usually wherever you consume your podcast, we should be available there on whatever your device, whatever your platform. Until next week when we have the second installment of our Chat with Julia – Another look at the Wayback segment with my daddy. Stay safe, stay inside, keep washing those hands, and I'll catch you on the flip side.